0: Last week, we almost melted. (laughs) Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, If you would, open your Bibles to uh, Exodus, the 26th chapter and the 33rd verse. And we're going to continue our study there of the tabernacle, one of the uh, amazing pictures of the plan of God. And it goes down, I believe, to some very uh, extreme details. Because why, why would God put it in his inspired word? Uh, when there's so many other things he could have put in there, and he chose exactly these words, this sequence. This is what I want to tell you about when I start talking about the, the plan of the tabernacle. See to it, Moses, that you make it exactly like I told you on the mountain now we know the whole thing is a type it's a shadow of things to come so as we start looking at the individual parts of it we start asking what role does this play now the people that saw the tabernacle saw it built didn't have to understand every single part of it because we're still in the still in the position of progress, progressive revelation and as god continues to reveal things throughout the scripture then more and more the uh, tabernacle and later the temple will become quite evident of what it is referring to. It's interesting, like the Passover meal. When the Passover meal was first instituted, I don't think the Jews understood every part of the Passover meal about the the lamb and the bread and what they did with the bread and they hid the bread and all the stuff that they, they did. And they didn't understand it, but as things went on, and they started to have more revealed to them through the inspired word, then they should have been able to understand it more and then say, yeah, this is what God's been trying to tell us all along. And so... The Jews, too, were real good at being hard-headed and stiff-necked and not paying a lot of attention. So they could have easily missed what God had in store for them. But it is right there and, in, in a sense, plain as the nose on your face. So we're going to take a look at some of this, and we're, gonna, we're connecting the dots with various types and symbols. And then we're trying to see how they relate to one another And there's some interesting things that we don't get a lot of detail on and they're left for us to speculate so we don't really speculate on particular designs like the veil that we're looking at. What we do know is it came with certain colors. It came with cherubim embroidered on top of them. Those are the things that have prophetic and symbolic significance. And so those are the things we take apart and analyze. So... Before we begin, since we're looking at spiritual things, we need to be sure we're connected to the one that imparts spiritual knowledge, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So let's come into the throne of grace and ask that they would be our real teachers, and we'd be able to understand more of the tabernacle and remember it. Uh, We need that prayer more and more as we get older, and then be able to use it wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your goodness and love. Thank you for your amazing plan that you laid out actually in eternity past and revealed it to us a piece at a time in a phenomenal way because we'd never been able to figure it out uh, all at once. So you just continued to reveal it slowly over a period of time and you brought it to this, this point in time that we can look back and really get a good idea of what you wanted people to know through your tabernacle. So, Father, we pray the Holy Spirit will indeed enlighten, challenge, and convict us where we need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been looking, of course, at the tabernacle. We have seen the uh, outer tent. We've seen the four coverings on the outer tent and what they represent. We have seen the things that go inside the holy place, which includes the table of showbread, first of all. And we know things about the table. We know its dimensions, but as far as its design... We're not told exactly what the design is, just basically what's on it. And the uh, loaves of showbread. Then the lampstand. We are told a lot about that. and We're able to draw some beautiful conclusions about Jesus being the light of the world like he claimed to be. He's also the bread that came down out of heaven. This is the altar of incense, and it has four horns. We've not yet studied the altar of incense, but behind that is the veil. It's blue, purple, and scarlet stuff is what it's called embroidered on fine white linen now that's what we know about it but was it this design where the they had the stripes going across well we don't know was it the design behind the lampstand in this particular rendering um was it uh, we're we're heading on there that sea cow just won't leave did it look like that i'll see all these meet the criteria did it look like that Did it look like this? Or what about this? We don't know exactly. Was it stripes, sideways, horizontal, crooked? What what was it? Were these all intermeshed? What we do know is that it's on white linen. It's blue, purple, and scarlet material, the fine white linen of of Egypt. And so I want to kind of stay with this picture tonight because what we are looking at is the uh, veil um, itself, and we're going to get some more information on it. Now, the veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Well, as you walk inside of the, as you walk inside of the tabernacle, through what is called the hanging, as you walk into that, you see the the table, the lampstand, and the altar of incense, and the veil right at the very back of it. And so what, what, how does it kind of grab you? Now if you remember the white curtain that went up over the top, up the sides and over the top and down the back, that was white linen, but it was embroidered with cherubim. On it. So on the inside of this, you have cherubim all over this part called the holy space, the holy place. You have it on the walls, you have it on the ceiling, and you have it on the veil. So it's important to remember that somewhere the angels play an important role in how this how this all comes out. What this plan actually includes. In verse 30 of Exodus 26 it says, "You shall cause to rise up the tabernacle according to its judgment." Which you have been caused to see in the mountain. So the judgment here is the law that's set down by God. This is the law of the tabernacle, if you will. This is how it is supposed to be constructed. He left the designs on a lot of these as the work of a skillful workman. Okay, so we don't know what they are. Whenever we get up, um, whenever we get to heaven, we'll get to see it. And I'm looking forward to it because then we'll be able to go, hey, that's what it really looked like, just like you will. You know, and we'll get to all of our misconceptions and misperceptions and all these things wiped away because we'll get to see it just like it is. And that, that to me, is going to be quite exciting. Now, <clears throat> we find in verse 31 the inner veil. And it says, Then you shall make or manufacture. A veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted white linen. It shall be manufactured with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. Now see, I'd like to see what the cherubim looked like that they put in the embroidery into the veil, into the into the other curtains. Because we don't know. It's just speculation. So we 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 know it's cherubim. It was identifiable by the people out in the desert. They knew They knew what it was. The priests knew what it was. They knew it referred to the angelic creation because cherubim had been revealed in Genesis 3, all the way back to Genesis 3. Now we're in Exodus 26. In Genesis chapter 3, there are two cherubim placed at the doorway into the Garden of Eden to keep people from entering after the fall of man and the expulsion from the garden. So cherubim is something that human beings have known about for a long time. And here we are, when you go back to 4000 BC roughly with the fall of Adam and Eve, and then you come down to 1450 with the construction of the tabernacle, As you can see, you've covered a lot of ground, 1,550 years from the, um, actually more than that, 2,650 years from the fall of uh, Adam. So uh, here is the, the picture, and it says the work of a skillful workman. Verse 32, and you shall give it on four pillars. And we see, we looked at the words this last time. I want to say last week, but we were dodging tornadoes last week, so um, we weren't here. It's always, we have to dodge them a few times a year here in Oklahoma, and, and people think it's such a scary place to live. I said I'd rather see them coming than not know what was going to crack open under my feet. I don't want to be out in California where... Things uh, like that happen, and one of these days will break off into the ocean, as it's been projected. Anyway, put it on four pillars of acacia wood with gold. Totally, these are totally overlaid with gold. Their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. Now here it's got the the um, the pillars behind the veil, but as you see in other Renderings. We don't know if the pillars were behind the veil, in front of the veil. We don't know where they were located. So they were just pillars of acacia wood. So the um, being of gold on four sockets of silver. So if you have wood overlaid with gold, what does that represent? That's wood is humanity, gold is deity, hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. These set in a socket of silver. Now, the others weren't set in silver. They were set in bronze, and bronze was a picture of judgment. So you have the hypostatic union when it's wood overlaid with gold and the two tenons that went down into the bronze. That indicates that he was judged. The Lord was judged for us. Now we move to silver to get through the veil of the tabernacle. Silver is redemption. So the hypostatic union's judgment portrayed by the whole outside of the tabernacle holding the up, pillars up in the walls, that whole outside led to what? Redemption, which is silver. How do you get through the how do you get through that veil? Only by being one of the redeemed. It's the only way you get through it. So things start to come together over the course of time as to what they're looking at. A lot of the Jews probably looked at that and said, boy, there's a lot of money going into that thing. And they didn't get any farther than that, didn't figure it out. But I think Moses had a pretty good idea, but even he did not have a full revelation of God's plan. I mean, when you start looking at it, you get to Isaiah in the 800s, and that's where you really start getting the prophecies that's where you Uh, You can see some of them in David in the Davidic Psalms where he's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, something totally different. Then you see in Isaiah, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. You see the government will rest on his shoulders. He shall come out of the line of Jesse. You find Isaiah 53 with a suffering servant. And so you you find out a lot of, of wonderful information out of Isaiah. That's 800 years. Years after Moses was given the instructions on the mountain. And it's by the time that, guess what? Solomon had built a temple. So there's, there's things to be uh, learned as the Jews go on more about Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah who is to come. So <clears throat> put it on four sockets of silver. Now in verse 33, where we left off before, and you shall hang up or give this is the word Nathan it's probably the first word you learn in the Hebrew language it's a, a Hebrew 101 word they say it's used a whole lot and it's uh, Nathan is a word that uh, they often tie ty- they they take this word and they use it to teach you how the words are formed off of a name, off of a verb in the Hebrew language they will take this this is a a key word. Another one they use, interestingly enough, is "katal." "Katal" is a word that means to kill. So when it goes, let's see, "yikto, nikto, nikto, tiktol, ticktali," I kill, you kill, he/she/it or kills, we kill, you kill, they kill. So that's <laughs> that's the way it declines, and it takes "nathan." It takes the consonants and it starts adding prefixes and suffixes and and we're letters into the middle of it to change it from a cow to a pl to a nifel to whatever it is. So that's the way that the, the Hebrew language works. So it says, "You shall give the veil under the clasp." To me, every time I see it, it says it's got something to do with grace, something to do with grace. The clasp or the gold clasp of the linen curtain and. Um, uh, It says you put the veil under the clasp. Okay, So there is clasp up above it, because these clasps are what holds the curtains together that goes from the holy place to the holy of holies. That's where there's a series of clasps that connect the curtain. Remember, one of them was... Thirty feet, another one was fifteen feet, and they are connected that way. So this this is connected with gold clasp, and it says, "And shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil." Now, <clears throat> the the word order in this particular verse says, "You shall cause to bring in to there from the house." To the veil, the ark of the testimony. So you're bringing it from the house to another location, what is called the house. And the veil shall serve for you. Badal is the word. It's a hifield, which is causative. It shall cause to separate for you uh, as a partition. It's not really there. You don't need it. it. Shall cause to separate for you between the holy place and the holy. Of holies. That is a superlative construction, sometimes translated the most holy place. And I kind of like that. Holy of holies. um, Most holy place tells me it's a superlative that's there. So I use holy place and most holy place. So the first point here is the plan of God. Pointed out by the blue class. Blue represents heaven. Gold represents deity. So it's looking at something that comes from above. The plan of God. Closely observe the humanity of Christ at the incarnation. Now the plan of God is that which has been laid out in eternity past. And we're told before the foundation of the world this plan was laid out. So it goes back to eternity past. And it says that in this plan of God, it laid out what was going to go on. And then the plan of God was the accountability to what what Jesus did. Did he do everything according to what had been laid out in in eternity past for this to happen? Did he do this? And so this is telling us that, that, yeah, it was under close watch by who? The angels. Things into which angels long to look. The cherubim. They're surrounding all of this. They're on the holy place. They're in the most holy place. They're in time, phase two. With us, they're in eternity, phase three. So they're all watching carefully. When God says something, they are all there as observers to say, Did this happen or did it not? And so, you you talk about being under pressure. I think about peer pressure. Of course, Jesus had no peers. But a lot of that has to do with people critically looking at you and observing things, looking for flaws. And what we're being told here is that this, this, nobody has ever been examined more closely than the Lord himself. Nobody ever in the history of the world. The tabernacle was set up, okay, caused to raise up the tabernacle, put these 15-foot pillars in place, Connect them all together, get them ready to go, get this thing set up, get this veil in here, then bring the ark in. You you didn't set the ark down build a tabernacle around it. In other words, when you built the, the ark, you kept it in one place, and then there was a ceremony that was going to take it into the Holy of Holies. The ceremony of placing the ark inside the veil denotes the entry of Christ in hypostatic union into heaven. Now see, he is God and man. A body was made for him. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. He died on a cross, was buried, rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven. So it denotes the entry of him into phase three, which is heaven. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. This is where you start letting the scripture interpret itself. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the great and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. See, what the tabernacle was showing is how he was going to enter through. Doing what? Being judged? The the bases around the outer court? The silver, the redemption that he accomplished under full observation within the plan of God, looking for a flaw or error. And he says that not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's our silver that's there. This is out of Hebrews 9:11 and 12. 23 and 24 of that chapter, Therefore it was necessary... For the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, blood of bulls and goats. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You talk about a powerful verse that's often overlooked. He entered in there for who? For us. On our behalf. mere copy of the true one. Hebrews 9.24. There's a word that is plugged in there. That people like to (laughs) play like it doesn't exist. Because it only occurs twice. And it happens in 1 Peter 3. Along about verse 18. Where it's talking about um, the Moses and water. And it says and water. Um, being a uh, model, I forget exactly how Peter has translated, but it basically is saying that it is the word "anti-tupos." It's only used two times in the New Testament. 924 is one of those translated a mere copy. It l- should actually say a type against a type. Antitupos means against, tupos means a type. And it is a comparison of types. Some people say, well, a type is the shadow. The anti type is the reality. That does not fit the Greek word. Simply does not. Anti means against. So it is one type against another. In 1 Peter 3, he says, we have a better type now than Noah's Ark, and it's called water baptism. Okay? That's the type that we now have. Better type of salvation than Noah's Ark. It's a picture. Again, it's not reality. It's still a type. Here we have the, the uh, tabernacle is a copy of the one in heaven, a shadow of the things to come. And that's what we'll have. You keep reading on in chapter 10, verse 1. It says we have these things as a shadow of what is to come. Now, this refers to his ascension and session to heaven after his initial mission on earth was completed. So think about moving this ark in. The ark is wood overlaid with gold, right? Hypostatic union. What's it got in it? It's got a pot of manna, the bread that came down out of heaven. It's got Aaron's rod that budded, the resurrection and the life. And it's got the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus kept the law. Okay? Jesus was the true bread that came down out of heaven, and He is the resurrection and the light. All of them connected directly to things that He said, and most of them recorded in the Gospel of John, in the I Am section that he, that he did. So when it goes, when it is preceded in a ceremony going through the tabernacle, it is a picture of what Christ underwent in time, as the bread of of life, the light of the world. The connection to the Father, the altar of incense, because the incense would permeate not just the holy place but the holy of holies. So it prayers what connects us to God in eternity. So that is the picture because the t- the veil has to be taken open, right? And then this ark is going to go in there, and then the veil is going to be shut. The beautiful picture of His ascension into heaven and His session with the Father. What was coming? The house denotes the holy place, which Jesus had to pass through. That's referring to this life, this house that he's going to have to pass through. To pass through in time to take his position at the right hand of the Father. Now, he sits at the right hand. Hebrews 1 talks about it. He was once a little lower than angels, made like us, but now he is higher than angels. Now, what an what a amazing picture that is. He became like us. The veil was closed until the ark entered, then opened and closed again. So we have the uh, the the veil. We'll see that as as we get into it more with the actual ceremony of how it's done. But they did it in a way to keep the uh, to keep the uh, ark from being exposed to the outside. Now, since the veil was not attached to the clasp, it's placed under them, it indicates his deity did not support his humanity because the clasps were blue with gold on them. Deity. They went over the top of it. It says, hang the, hang this veil under it. Not, You're not hanging it from the clasp. You're hanging it under the clasp. So there is another uh, what means of hanging it from pillar to pillar that goes across it. And it says... Um, his, his deity didn't support his humanity while he hung on the cross he was true humanity while he was on the cross deity in a sense it abandoned him why have you forsaken me he's left him there it wasn't the, wasn't the Holy Spirit that got him through it was his humanity that got him through and how could humanity possibly do that because he knew the word of God and his humanity he wrote it in his deity and he knew it in his humanity And he says, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. One of the greatest acts of faith ever said anywhere by anyone. And that's what he did. And uh, you you take my life, I'm going to take it back up again. You can't keep me in the grave. This illustrates Jesus' work on the cross when he was separated from the Father. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 5. It's interesting. Sometimes we forget this, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" is is uh, a quotation out of Psalm 22, which is viewed and been viewed for millennia as a messianic psalm. He says, "It opens. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning." Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night and I have no rest. So it sounds like there's more than one cry that is going on there. Yet you are holy. Now if we were to take that word into the New Testament, what we'd find out is given a special meaning. You're experientially holy. And you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. We do... a song from time to time called Even So. Uh, Absolutely a beautiful song. Even So. Yeshua Come. What a great picture that that is. Oh, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you did deliver them. To thee you cried out and you were delivered. In you they trusted and they were not disappointed now that's quite a quite a psalm that starts off with the same words that jesus uttered on the cross christ in a sense had to pass through the cross to enter the real most holy place it's a picture he had to pass through the cross now why would you make a copy on earth of something that actually was set up in heaven You got to really put your thinking caps on because what he evidently did in eternity past before man came along was he made that in heaven and who would he show it to angels why that takes a lot of work to figure out but it's really not is really not impossible to see what he is doing. The angels are observing all this. Why? They have a vested interest in what went on in the life of this uh, this man named Jesus. Now it says in verse 34, And you shall put, here's the word give once again. The mercy seat. This is the word we've, we have translated as covering. But that's what, it, that's what it looks at, the, the kaphar. It's a, it's a covering on the Ark of the Testimony in the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. Now this portrays the son's acceptability to the father based on the fact that he kept the law, provided the living bread, and rose again. That's what's on the inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony. What are they going to take in first? The ark. Now, what it says? It's a petition. They're going to take in the ark and then put the, put the lid on it. Now it also denotes that propitiation of the Father's righteousness and justice is accomplished by passing through the cross. So what Jesus was doing... He was becoming the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but those of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. See, this is, he is satisfying. He was the one that satisfied the Father's righteousness and justice. And he has passed through the earthly position to take his seat in the heavenly position. Now this established, when he did this, His strategic victory in the angelic conflict. Now that means that he is going to put all of his enemies under his feet. It means that he is going to become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the Psalm 110 passage. It's his basis for his tactical victory. Now his tactical victory had to do that Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he made a spectacle of them. And then, he says, having taken the certificate of debt, owed by who? Us, and nailed it to a cross. Now, that's quite a victory, isn't it? Because the strategic victory is to accomplish his mission. The tactical victory is the fact that he did it, and he took care of this issue of sin. I think when Satan was arguing back and forth with God, I think he said, well, we've sinned, there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's probably part of his argument. Because, uh, if if you have noticed people that don't play fair, Satan doesn't play fair. He lies, cheats, steals. He comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. He doesn't play fair. So when you find people not playing fair, it sounds a whole lot like something Satan would do, doesn't it? Because that is what he'd do. It also teaches about his role in intercession. He's become the mediator between God and man. He is our great high priest on heaven's throne. What was a what was a priest to the Jews? A mediator between God and man. What was Moses? A mediator between God and man. Who is Jesus after the order of Melchizedek? The ultimate mediator between God and man. 1 John 2 says that he is our defense attorney. Because Satan doesn't quit accusing us. He doesn't because we are still just a bunch of goof-ups. We are still a bunch of of goof-ups. It's uh, amazing to see how sometimes uh, people don't realize that. And they get into real judgmental situations on other people. A lot of times because they didn't commit the same sins the other person did. And so it's real easy for us to look and want a spirituality by comparison instead of a spirituality by an absolute standard. Because if we go to an absolute standard, we're all goof-ups. That's, that's the only thing you can say. How about our acceptability before God? We're in Christ. If Christ is acceptable and we're entered into union with Him, we become acceptable to Him. Our current positional truth. Set your hearts on the, on the things above where Christ is seated. He's seated at the right hand. He is seated there. Are we in Him? Yes. Currently, positionally, because of him, we are seated next to him, next to the Father. So how far away is the Father when you want to talk to him? I mean, really, when it gets down to it. Some think, people think, well, uh, you know, my prayers don't go any higher than this room. You know, I've, I've, everybody feels like that from time to time. Well, they're just, God's just not even, he is, let me tell you. He is. Why? If you're a believer, you're actually seated next to him. Now, that, when you, when you grasp that and it becomes a reality, you think, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Sitting next to the one who planned the creation of the heavens and the earth, salvation and everything else. Along with the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity acts in perfect harmony with each other. But our current positional truth... His superiority over all creation. Now Hebrews passages are beautiful. Uh, that he uh, is the exact representation of his being. He he's the one that brought all things together. It's the one that the Bible claims more than once that Jesus, in his pre-incarnate form, was a creator. Where does it do that? Colossians one, verse fifteen. Where does it do that? Hebrews one. And verse 2, see, it. he's been here all along. He is the creator. And how about his high priesthood? It's a different kind of priesthood. It's um, one that doesn't require any animal sacrifices. He is the one that when we offer up a prayer to the Father, and the devil accuses us, which he still does, Revelation 12, And Jesus says, it's paid for. That sin's paid for already. Because he's our defense attorney. And then, in the middle of the trib, he's going to throw Satan out of there forever. And Satan's really going to get mad. I didn't just say that. The Bible says that. Goes forth with a great wrath. It also portrays the acceptability of a one-time sacrifice. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that take away sins. It is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of what? The world. The power of that verse is is such a universal uh, dynamic that it's hard to even grasp on this side of it. The Lamb of God, the sacrifice that takes away. It removes it as an issue. See, the covering of the ark, our sins were covered it's what it says. In other words, the sins were still due, they hadn't been paid for. They weren't paid for till the cross. So in the Old Testament, the sins it's just they're piled high up. Okay, and so God said, "I'm going to cover them. I'll cover you on these things till I get them paid for." And it's just like, it's just like there's a great big pile of manure with a great big tarp over the top of it, and the pile gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because sins stink. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally, he has paid for it all and the pile's gone. It's not an issue any longer what you did. It's an issue who you trust for your eternity. That's the issue. So until they were paid for, you could say it was still an issue in the, in the conflict between God and Satan. It was still an issue. But then after the cross, the last thing in the world the devil wanted was to hear his people yell crucify him. Because he knew what that meant. It meant he'd lost. He had lost. He wanted the Jews to stone him. Because that's not what was prophesied. That's what he was hoping for. And so you can almost see Satan on the sidelines over there going, throw rocks at him. Come on, Pilate, give give Jesus to the Jews. Let them stone him and all that. And what do the Jews do? Crucify him. Hmm. That really, a kingdom divided against itself shall not stand. That's the ultimate example of that. The basis... This is the basis, what went in there, for what would become the church. It didn't prophesy the church. It's just saying that this this is what happened. We are the redeemed. It has all been paid for. We're supposed to take this amazing blessing that we've got and take it to the whole world. That's what we are supposed to do. It became the basis for the church, the resurrected Christ who had paid for all of our sins. Now, the other furniture... Location in verse 35, it says, And you shall set the table, that's the table of showbread, uh, and the lampstand opposite the table, on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall give the table on the north side. So as we walk into the tabernacle, I should have another picture here, as we walk into the tabernacle, what we will see is the lampstand on the south side. You'll know where it is, because this, this is always on the west end of the, uh, the veil, and the Holy of Holies is always on the west end of the uh, tabernacle, and the opening is always to the east side. Okay, so when it says that this lampstand goes on the south side, it's on the left, and the uh, table goes on the north side. And it says, uh, now the setting of the table denotes the permanence of Bible doctrine. Here it is, set, it's stabilized, the word assume, it means get it in there and get it stabilized, get it set up. And where is our stability found in this life? From knowing what God's word has to say. True Bible doctrine. Provide stability for life. Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of God abides forever. What an amazing statement that is. Only through the word of God do we see the perfect reality of of eternity. If you didn't have the word of God, how would you know about heaven? We know God said eternity in the hearts of men. And we know there can be speculation, imagination, conjecture and everything else. But only through God's word do we have any kind of guarantees about eternity. It says in 1 Corinthians 13:12, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know in full, just as I have been fully known. Now to me, that's great. The curiosity is still here. You still wonder, what about all these things? Just like, what did these curtains really look like? What do those cherubim really look like? Uh, there's, there's questions we still have about the tabernacle. But when we get to see it, the questions are all answered. We know in part. Now, the only effective witness in the darkness of Satan's domain is the believer Shedding light, that becomes God's word. So we, as a we, as a priest, what are we supposed to do? Because the priest went in, partook of the showbread. The priest went in, trimmed the wicks of the the lampstand. The priest offered up prayers. That's what they did. What is our you know priesthoods changed? We started with the family priesthood. What did they do? Offered sacrifices. Okay, they taught. Their family, they led in worship, and they prayed. Look at Job, first two chapters. I mean, it, it just it gets filled in from there, but that's kind of the outline in Job 1 and 2. So that's the family priesthood. Then the priesthood changed because there was a change of dispensation. Whenever the Lord established the Levitical priesthood, what did they do? They offered up sacrifices, okay, they partook of the bread, Bible doctrine. They uh, kept the light burning. And then they offered up prayers. What do we do as church age priests? We are royal priests. We are all priests, First Peter chapter 2. It's not a specialized priesthood anymore. What's our function? See, the form of the priesthood changed to denote a change of time frame, a change of dispensation, a different way to do things. But the functions never did. Hebrews thirteen verses fifteen and sixteen. It says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, and doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we what do we do? We offer up sacrifices which in the churches are self, not animals. We praise God, we worship him. We uh Study His Word so we'll know how to function. We're supposed to take this Word that we've studied, which is the light, and take it out to a dark, dying world and tell them about it. And how's all this accomplished? By means of prayer. What are we looking forward to? What's on the other side of the veil? That's what we're looking forward to. Because that's where our, our rewards are found. God's Word is a grace gift to the human race. The Bible is ever much as a grace gift as the salvation is because it is the one that tells us about who He is. It doesn't tell us everything about who He is. People say, uh, the Bible is honestly, but mistakenly so, the Bible is an exhaustive revelation of God. Think about that for a second. Here is the infinite god omniscient god he made us lower than the angels and they're not capable of fully understanding it we don't know all of the aspects and ins and outs of god almighty who we serve we'll have eternity to find out See, won't that be won't that be wonderful as we see that the different elements we we try to make it simple so we can understand it's sovereign, righteous, justice, eternal life and love. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresent, unchanging, immutability and veracity he always tells the truth. And that's just a simple explanation of God. But if you go in to look at, at other explanations of God, you start looking at omnipresence. And then you see that he's not just everywhere at once, he's everywhere at the same intensity. That's a whole new level, isn't it? to think that he is at the same intensity and Alpha Centauri out there as he is right here in this room right now. That's hard for us to grasp. Our feeble minds, I don't think, could do it. So he doesn't want to blow our heads up. What he wants to do is bring us along as the children he loves and teach us as we go. Now, with the ascension and session of Jesus Christ, the canon was reopened the holy spirit was given john 16:13 i'll send you another comforter and the church is given the commission to bear witness and it's all portrayed by this placement procedure we're going to be we're not replacing israel not at all but what we are is carrying on what israel should have been done doing all of all of their existence that's what we are called to do as the church Now, in verse 36 is the entrance to the tent. In verse 36, you do have this, right? Are you out of notes? No? Okay. It says, And you shall make or manufacture a screen. Now, this is a masakh. The verb means to block or to stop up something, it means a screen. It's used for covering a well. In 2 Samuel 17:19, it's interesting that it's also used for the cloud that covered the Jews during the day in Psalm 105:19. It's a covering. Same word that's used to describe what covered the Jews during the day to protect them from the sun. It's kind of interesting. If we can really pray for clouds at times. Yesterday I do. I was doing a. Uh, funeral service and uh, it was a graveside service two o'clock in the afternoon in wonderful sunny Oklahoma and you know it's kind of warm yesterday about two o'clock in the afternoon and there was a few clouds that were coming in and I don't know if anybody else was but Helen and I were praying for clouds to come over because it was hot and I was there in a suit and uh uh and guess what the lord brought a cloud we were very grateful for that cloud that dropped the temperature about 10 degrees for about 30 minutes so that we could so we could do do the service but it's a, it's a screen it's also it's used as a screen for the defense of judah in isaiah 22:8 and it's telling them that you shouldn't depend more on earthly defenses than you do on divine ones. And it says, you shall manufacture a screen for the doorway of the tent. A doorway is patak. Patak is used 164 times. And as you look at this thing, see if I can get it, I don't know if I've got a good picture of it or not. Nope. I'm going to go back here. The screen we're talking about's on the front of this. Okay, here is the veil. Here is the screen. It goes right on the front. And it says, for the doorway. This is the doorway because this whole thing is called the tent. And when you see the word door, and we go, Jesus saying, <clears throat> I am the door into the sheepfold. I mean, you just the the stuff get for us to identify is real easy. To identify what this symbolism was. There's only one way to enter. Jesus said I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Where's the Father represented here? Where's Christ? Next to him. What does Christ do? He enters through. It's a door. How's does the believer get there? Through the door of <clears throat> the tent. The ohel is the word for tent. And the tent, interestingly enough, emphasizes the transitory nature of man. We're just a bunch of of vagabond sojourners passing through this world. We want to hang on to this world with every part of our being, don't we? You know one of the great things about Abraham spelled out in Hebrews chapter 11? He says, having confessed that he was a stranger and an exile on this earth, and he was looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. That's Abraham. I'm just passing through this life, folks. Now, if we have that idea. What can man do to us? We are just passing through this life. A short period of time, we're called a vapor. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then passes away. We all are. We're just a, we're just a vapor in the wind, as the old song goes. That's all we are in the sands of eternity. And why not make the most of it while we're here? And it says, uh, the doorway of the tent, a blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted white linen, the work of a weaver. Now, this is the cow participle used nine times, and it is the word uh, rakam. It's a word that means to... A weave the cow participle says the one weaving. oftentimes they take a participle the one doing something and they turn it into a noun and it's a, um, that's how part of the word formation. It's an embroider you can call it a weaver an embroider. It's only use outside of the tabernacle interestingly enough is in Psalm 139 verses 14 to 16. And guess what those verses say. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully woven in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book they were all written. The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Wow. This is the embroider. Have you ever viewed your life as an embroidery of God? Because that's what it is. You're the one that put me together. Now sometimes we might like it if we've been put together a little differently. Some a little taller, some a little shorter. You know, all those other things that we don't like. But God says, this is, this is what you need to be. Okay, so make the most of it. Make the most of it. In fact, the farther behind you're, the eight ball you are, and the better you do, the more rewards will be forever. That's just the way it is. In verse 37, And you shall make five pillars, This is the same word as verse 32 of acacia for the screen. And overlay, totally overlay them with gold. Their hooks also being of gold. And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So here are these pillars once again set in bronze. Which is a picture of judgment. They're the justice of God. And the judgment of God is so very important. Sometimes all people see is His love and they don't realize He is absolute righteousness and absolute justice. And somehow, He put that together perfectly. And we study that all the time. How does love and justice go together? How do you show grace and mercy to people and yet hold people accountable for what they do? Whenever you find Jesus in John 1, it says He was, he was full of grace and truth. That's the two probably hardest things to balance in life that there is. Where are you gracious and where do you speak the truth? We're always supposed to speak the truth in love, correct? But to do that, you have to speak it in grace as well. So what is? how do we do this? This is something that is not easy to do, to say the least. Now the screen represents Jesus Christ through whom we enter the grace of life. Romans 5, first two verses, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The fact that you can walk into that thing by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through the only door that gets gets in there, that's a celebration, worthy of celebration. The blue is His, his origin, the screen, heavenly. The purple is His royalty. The red is His work. And the white is His righteousness. Those four colors were picked for very important reasons. The screen... This front screen lacks the motif of cherubim. Which could indicate that angelic salvation is no longer available. If he made it available to angels, okay, which I believe that he did, he made it available to angels, then, but there's none here on the doorway. Maybe it means that it's no longer available to them. There's always a limited time for salvation. For human beings, whenever we draw our last breath, the the cutoff point has been reached. That's a shame, but that's the way it is. There's always a limited point of time for people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Entry through the screen denotes the believer seeks refuge in God and seeks protection from Him. So as we go through that screen and we uh, come boldly into the throne of grace. You remember that verse Hebrews 4:16? Come boldly, where's the throne of grace? Back there behind the veil. It's saying, come on in. Don't just stop there at the table of showbread. Don't stop at the lampstand. Don't stop at that. Come on in. When this veil was ripped in half at the cross in the temple, guess what? It's opened up eternity for us. We don't have to go through any mediators anymore. We go directly to the Lord Himself, the Creator of the universe. It's a powerful message that this thing portrays, and the symbolism portrays throughout. Um, as it did it for 1,500 years, and then it did it, it's done it for 2,000 years after that. A powerful picture of the of the plan of the Almighty. Let's pray, Father. Thank you again. Once again, you have shown us things that are amazing. Some are hard to hang on to, some are hard to grasp. But Father, you have opened up an opportunity for us to look deeper into your plan. And Father, we thank you so much for that privilege to be able to go beyond the surface and go a little bit down into the depth of your amazing plan. We thank you for that. Let us live in honor of it. In Jesus' name, amen.